Romans chapter 8. You have your Bible open. I think that will be a helpful thing this morning. There are notes we've provided in the bulletin if you'd like to track along with the message this morning. As we're plowing through the New Testament at a breakneck pace, this is our second week in the book of Romans. And if you're reading along, you've come to Romans 8, and next week we're going to come to Romans 9 and 10. And I don't know any better way to describe those three chapters than to say we are in the deep end of the pool. We have gone from the shallows into the deep, and there are some things that really require thought and consideration in these chapters. The book of Romans starts like any typical first century letter. Paul says some things about himself, who he is, he identifies himself. He says some things to the people that he's writing to, the church in Rome. He has never visited this church at the time of this writing, but he knows there are believers there, so he's writing a letter to these Christians. He says some personal things about his desire to be with them and why he wants to come to Rome and all of that sort of personal conversation, personal correspondence. And pretty quickly, he comes to the point of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, contains the theme of the whole book of Romans, and it answers the question, how can a person be made right with God? How can sinful people enter into a right relationship with a holy God? If you have your Bible, you might just flip over. I'll put it up on the screen as well. These are the theme verses for the, the book of Romans. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme verse of the gospel. And Paul is saying to this church, here's how, have good news, here's how sinful people can be made right with the holy God. In saying that, right from the get-go, Paul is assuming that we are sinful people and that left to ourselves, we are not in a right relationship with Almighty God. And that's immediately what he begins to talk about. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, Paul lays out the doctrine in its most comprehensive form in the New Testament or in the Bible. He lays out the doctrine of what we would call total depravity. The total depravity of all human beings. That doctrine does not mean every single person is as sinful and wicked and bad as they could possibly be. That's not what the doctrine means. What that doctrine means is all people are sinners. And every part of who we are as human beings is impacted by sin and affected by sin and plagued by sin and tainted by sin. So Paul lays that out, Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. And it's bad news. It's really bad news. But Romans is not a bad news book. It's a gospel book. Remember the theme verses we just read, Romans 1, 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. And so in Romans 3, all the way through Romans 11, Paul begins to lay out how it is that God saves 
sinners. Those chapters, Romans 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, are the greatest distillation of how salvation works in the entire Bible. That's not to say you don't need the rest of the Bible. You need all of the Scriptures. All of the Scriptures are inspired by God. They're sufficient. They're authoritative. They're powerful. They're beautiful. But those chapters are the single greatest concentration of of explaining the plan of salvation that was accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's one of the things that makes the book of Romans a beautiful book. Paul is honest in this book. He's honest. He's honest about sin. He's honest about salvation. And he's honest about the fact that even though he has put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he continues to struggle with sin. He's honest about the fact that even though he is following the king of the universe and he has been adopted into the family of God, he still experiences struggles and trouble and suffering in this life. And that's what we're talking about in Romans chapter 8, the verses that we read just a moment ago. We're talking about suffering. And so here's the big idea of the passage we just read together. Believers, Christians, will experience suffering in this life, and believers will endure suffering in this life. As a follower of Jesus, you can be certain that you will experience suffering in this life. Mark it down, it's certain. And what Paul is saying in the verses we just read is that you have everything you need to endure in the midst of that suffering. Not to take a shortcut around it, not to skip it somehow, not to avoid it because you know Jesus, but to endure in the midst of that suffering. I'll be honest with you, we read verse 18 down to 30. Very easily you could break this section into three or four sermons. And I'll show you the sections as we move through some of the major points. But what I want you to see is the section as a whole and how all of these arguments that Paul is making tie back to this idea. You will experience suffering, and if you're a believer, you will endure in the midst of suffering. When I read this passage this week, my mind went back two years ago to the month to June of 2020. And some of you are thinking, that is the year that we don't talk about. We've, we don't want to hear anything else about 2020. I don't either. But my mind went back to June of 2020. And in June of 2020, I wrote a, a blog post. And I titled the post, I was thinking about life and I was thinking about this passage. I titled the blog post, Creation is Groaning. Creation is groaning. And what was on my mind at the time were things that we were experiencing on planet Earth, things that we were experiencing in Odessa, Texas, and things that we were experiencing at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So in case you have forgotten, or maybe it's more likely you have blocked this year out from your memory, let me just remind you some of the things that were happening in the world when we were in the middle of 2020. There were a lot of wildfires in Australia early in 2020. I mean, some of the news reports made it sound like the entire continent, the entire nation was just burning and it was raging. 
They couldn't get these fires under control. Maybe you remember that world-famous athlete Kobe Bryant and his daughter and some other people died in a helicopter crash. You may not care much about Kobe Bryant, but for many Americans that was a shocking thing because he was famous and he was young and he was athletic and those sorts of people seem invincible and he had money and he was successful and then all of that was just gone in a moment. Maybe you remember a thing called COVID. And we just sort of paused the world. We had a mission team on the other side of the world that just sort of barely snuck back in. And we had all sorts of things related to COVID, uh, all sorts of consequences of what happened there. Maybe you remember that there was a lot of conflict in our nation in 2020. Conflict about race and conflict about who was in the wrong in certain situations. And there were protests and there were riots and there was burning and there was looting and there was just all sorts of things happening. It just seemed chaotic. The world seemed chaotic. Maybe you remember that just a few months earlier, in the fall of the previous year, we had a mass shooting in Odessa, Texas. It was a shocking thing to be driving around town on an afternoon and to get on social media and begin reading reports of that. It was a horrible situation. Seven people killed, dozens were hurt. Maybe you remember if you were here at the time, we had a young man in our church, young man in our youth group named Braden Chapman. He'd been battling cancer, and he'd been taking treatments and getting reports. And the last report that he had gotten from the doctor said, everything looks great. We could not be more pleased with how you're doing. And then it was just a matter of weeks later that the doctors came back and said, there is nothing more we can do. You have days to live. He passed away right about June of 2020. So with all that stuff going on, I'm trying to process all of it, and I, I said to myself, this feels like the year of the groan. What can you say in the midst of all of that mess, but just groan? You remember that year. Maybe not all of those things, but you remember things about 2020. It was a hard year. It was a tough year. Can we be honest just for a minute? Life before 2020 was also tough in a lot of different ways. And life since 2020 has been tough in a lot of different ways. And going forward until the Lord Jesus comes back, guess what you can expect? Life's going to be tough. In this world, you will have trouble. All of creation is groaning. And suffering is a reality in our lives. That's not a very cheery thing to talk about on a Sunday morning. But it's honest. You get enough cheery on the news, on TV, on YouTube, on social media. That can be your cheery fix for the day. Let's just be honest this morning about the reality of trouble in this world and the reality of suffering in this world. And what Paul lays out in this passage is four reasons Four truths that ought to solidify us and fortify us in our experience of suffering so that we not only experience suffering, but we endure through suffering. So I just want to lay these out to you this morning. Here's the first truth that you need to know. Suffering is a painful and horrible reality in this life. It is a reality. It is not a possibility. It is not a potentiality. It is not maybe out there on the horizon. 
It's a reality. Paul first touches on this issue in Romans 5. I've given you that reference in your notes and on the screen. You can go back and look in Romans 5. The argument in Romans 5 is very important to the book of Romans. Paul says there was a man named Adam, the first man that God created. He was set up as the head of humanity. And his sin counted as our sin. And his sin brought sin into the world. And when sin came into the world, death and sickness and suffering came with it. That's a reality. He picks up this idea here in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 18. He talks about the sufferings of this present time. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. That ties back to Romans 5. That ties back to Genesis 3. Adam was created as our representative The Bible says Adam was given dominion. That's the Bible word in Genesis. Dominion over all that God had created. And when he sinned, there was a consequence, a curse for everything that was under his dominion. God-given dominion. When Paul says here, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, I don't think he's saying that this was all Satan's fault, blame the devil. I don't even think that he's saying it's all Adam's fault. I don't think Adam is the him at the end of verse 20. I think God is the him at the end of verse 20. Because if you read Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, God showed up and he placed a curse on the ground. Creation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. The result of that curse plays out in the Old Testament, and Paul here describes it with the word, verse 20, futility. Vanity. Meaninglessness. Emptiness. Look what Paul says in verse 21. He says that creation is in bondage to corruption. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, we've joined in that groaning. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. Paul is lockstep with Jesus here. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, and Paul is saying, creation is groaning. Suffering is a reality. Now, very quickly, I want to lay a few thoughts out for you. We're not going to dwell on this long because we have other things to say. But I want you to understand that the cause of our suffering many times is a complex thing. And you need to understand this because you're going to suffer. And if you have a narrow, simplistic view of suffering and why it happens, you may end up really confused and really angry with God in the midst of your suffering. So what are the causes of our suffering. Let me just lay out six for you. Number one, the brokenness of the world. That's what Paul's saying here. You live in a world and a system and a cosmos that is broken. It does not operate the way God intended it to operate. It does not operate the new, the way the new heavens and the new earth will operate in the end. This world is broken and it's groaning. Secondly, causes of suffering. How about the consequences of sin? We talked about this Corey and I and Jason and Jake, 
as we taught through the kings of the Old Testament. Every week on a Wednesday night, we talked about the idea, the truth, the unavoidable fact that sin has consequences. You live in a morally charged universe. And most of what happens in our culture politically and policy-wise is an attempt to avoid the natural consequences of our sin. You can't escape it. Sin has consequences. And sometimes that consequence is suffering. Thirdly, the oppression of evil people. Sometimes the sin of others impacts us. You say, well, that's not fair. It's what it is. We're interconnected people. We have relationships. And our sin affects others and the sins of others affect us. Fourthly, the judgment of God. And specifically here I'm thinking about God's judgment on unbelievers. You and I, apart from clear biblical revelation, need to be very careful about watching the news and seeing some disaster or suffering and saying that's the judgment of God. You don't need to make that call. But it's clear that in the Scriptures, sometimes God brings judgment on His enemies. That is a possibility. It's a possibility in Bible days. It's a possibility today. So that's for unbelievers. For believers, we might think about the discipline of God. The discipline of God. Proverbs talks about this. Hebrews talks about this. God disciplines His children. He's not punishing them. He's not... Uh, judging them. It's not God's wrath on them, but it's His loving discipline on His children. Sixth, the inevitability of sickness and death. That just circles back to the brokenness of this world. When the doctor gives you a bad diagnosis, don't immediately assume that God is trying to get even with you about something. Don't immediately assume that God is angry with you about something. Death is inevitable. Sickness and death are connected. Sickness, illness is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. You need to know these things now because when suffering hits you out of the blue like a Mack truck, you're going to be trying to process what's going on in your life. You're going to be trying to make sense of the loss, the hurt, the pain, the confusion, the frustration. And these are some of the things that you might need to think through. But you also need to know that suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. Here's a second truth you need if you're going to endure suffering. The hope of our adoption. Our adoption. This is really Paul's point from verse 18 down to verse 25. Look at verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Glory is the word you need to focus on. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons. The sons of God. That's the word you need to key on. Glory. Glory will be revealed. Sons of God will be revealed. Verse 21, Paul says the creation will be revealed set free, and he explains that at the end of verse 21, he says this freedom will be the glory, there's your word glory, of the children, it's the idea of sonship, of God. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. 
verse 24 and 25, we wait for this adoption with hope. We don't have it fully realized now, but we hope in it. Not just like, I hope it comes to pass, but it is in, I don't have it now, but it's coming. It's coming. This picture of adoption is a beautiful picture in the Bible. Essentially, what Paul is describing here is the kind of situation you may have found yourselves in if you've ever adopted, or the kind of situation people have found themselves in. You know people who have adopted. What Paul is saying is this. All the legal requirements have been met for you to be adopted into God's family. It's a done deal. You're in. You were out as a sinner, but because of what Christ has done for you and because you put your faith in Jesus, you're in. You are legally sons. You are His children. You are united to Jesus by faith. You are united to the Son of God, which makes all of us sons of God. You're in. But if you've gone through the process of adoption, you also know that there's many times a period where it's a done deal, but you're not home yet. There's a waiting period sometimes. And sometimes that's a short waiting period. Sometimes on international adoptions, that's a very long waiting period. But what you're in right now is the waiting period. It's done. You're in. You're adopted. You're a son of God if you're united to Jesus by faith. All you're waiting for for now is to go home. You're just waiting to go home. And Paul says, one day, glory will be revealed through us. It will be truly revealed. It may not look like it now, but it will be truly and finally and fully revealed that we are sons of God. And Paul says, it is not worth comparing suffering now to the glory that's going to be revealed in us on that day. Do you know what that does not mean? That does not mean you need to just toughen up and suffering is no big deal. Suffering is a big deal. Creation is groaning under the weight of the brokenness of this world and the curse of God on this world. We are longing for the day of redemption. It doesn't mean your suffering is nothing. But by comparison, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. By comparison, there is no comparison. The suffering of this life will pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to the children of God. Truth number three. Truth to help you endure. The presence of the Holy Spirit will strengthen us in suffering. I want you to pay attention to the word likewise in verse 26. Paul says, likewise. That's the Greek word, osautos. It means that Paul's making a comparison between two things that he thinks are very similar. So he's just laid out this idea of glory and adoption and sonship And that's supposed to strengthen you in suffering. And he says, likewise, in other words, let me tell you something else that's going to help you and strengthen you as you experience suffering. And he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus promised to send another helper. Another helper, another paraclete. How is it that the Holy Spirit 
helps the people of God. This is what Paul says in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. God is the one who searches hearts. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit. It's because the true God is a triune God. Father, Son, Spirit. One God, three persons. The Father knows the mind of the Spirit. And the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't have adequate words to describe the bigness of what Paul's saying right there. What he's saying is you've been adopted into God's family and you can come to Him as your Father. And you can come, if you keep reading in Romans 8, you can come knowing that the Lord Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He is mediating for you before the Father right now. The Father sent the Son to live for you, to die for you, and He is still your mediator now. And the Father and the Son have sent the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and the Spirit lives in believers. And when you don't know what to pray, and all you can do is The Holy Spirit of God will take that before the Father and pray for you. That's a marvelous thought. The reality is that when you suffer, you will often find yourself saying, I don't know what to say in prayer. I don't know what to say to God right now. You'll find yourself thinking, my prayers are bouncing straight off the ceiling right back to me. That's okay. Because the Holy Spirit in those moments is interceding for you according to the will of God. That doesn't make suffering go away, but it ought to fortify you in your experience of suffering. And it leads us to one last truth. The saving purpose of the Father will strengthen us in suffering. Here we're really talking about verse 28, which everyone loves. And verse 29 and 30, which people don't love so much. I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of people who profess to love the Word of God who get real squeamish when you get to verse 29 and 30 and to what you're about to read this next week in Romans 9 and 10. That was true in Paul's day. And one of the fascinating things about Romans 8, especially as you move into 9, especially as you move into 10 is that Paul begins to answer objections to what he's saying, and it's all the objections that people make to these verses today, just one right after the other. What about this? Well, Paul answers it. What about this? Well, Paul answers it. People get squeamish about these verses today. Paul's pretty clear. It's a very similar passage in verse 28, 29, and 30 to what you see in Ephesians 1. He talks about God's foreknowledge. Biblically, you can trace that word through the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's not talking about God foreknowing decisions. He's talking about God foreknowing people. Having a relationship. Knowledge in the Bible implies relationship. 
He's talking about God knowing people. He talks about God predestining people. He talks about God calling people. He talks about God justifying people. He talks about God glorifying people. No people are lost in that process. Theologians call it this golden chain of salvation where no link is broken and no one is left behind in what Paul lays out here. And most of the time, what we want to do with those verses is argue about them. And we could have a whole sermon series, a whole sermon about what Paul is laying out here. What I'm intending for you to see this morning is that Paul's not trying to spark off a theological debate. He's not trying to get us to draw lines and move into one camp or the other. He's trying to help you in suffering. And the point of all of those things that God does, God's the one who foreknows, who predestines, who calls, who justifies, who glorifies. God does those things. And the point of those things is right here in verse 29 in the middle. It's that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the point. That is God's highest aim in your life. God conforming you, Christian, to the image of Jesus Christ, making you more like Jesus, that is more important to God than your comfort. It's more important to God than your prosperity. It's more important to God than your reputation. It's more important to God than your popularity. It's more important to God than your health and your wealth and your happiness. God's aim for you from eternity past, foreknowledge and predestination, to eternity future glorification is that in that span, you would be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus suffered. If you're going to be conformed to His image, guess what? You can expect suffering. Paul lays it all out in this passage. And what he's saying in this end section is not intended to make us argue with each other over doctrine. It's intended to fortify us. To put steel in our spine and to help us endure suffering. Knowing that even in suffering, especially in suffering, God is at work in us to conform us to the image of His Son.